Leviticus chapter 17. <clears throat> I, uh, if I sound scratchy or whatever, I had an endoscopy yesterday, so <laughs> I always sound a little scratchy, but uh, um, uh, yeah, so if, I, if I'm clearing my throat a little bit more, uh, I didn't expect to not be able to uh, hold in as much air during, during singing. That was uh, unexpected. Uh, but uh, other than that, I'm fine. Everything's good. It was a, it was a good uh, checkup. Uh, you know, dealing with a little bit of a hernia uh, in, in my um, esophagus, but I'm good. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. So if I'm clearing and whatever weirdness, you know why. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, we're in Exodus uh, 17. Now, uh, the children of Israel had uh, just watched the Lord deliver them miraculously. Uh, from the uh, oppression of Egypt. And last week we saw them complaining uh, against, uh, complaining about the fact that they didn't have anything to eat. And uh, so they, as they're uh, complaining, uh, there's this whole thing that ends up happening with them that uh, they, uh, the Lord provides for them. And they were given very specific instruction uh, regarding, uh, you know, they had quail, but they also received manna, the bread from heaven. And uh, the instructions with the manna was that you could only gather what you were going to eat in that day. And each person had a certain amount that they could gather each day. And uh, some had to learn the hard way because they, they weren't obedient to the Lord's very uh, clear command uh, that they could only have so much. You couldn't gather for, for two days. You could gather for one day. And the, the lesson there was the, was the daily reliance upon the Lord. And it, those that had kept, kept more, there was this nasty stench uh, from, uh, from the manna that they would have to deal with. So uh, the, the Lord dealt with that. Now, they were allowed to take a double portion uh, for the Sabbath and uh, so that they would gather uh, and be able to eat on the Sabbath and not have to do any work. <clears throat> they could rest uh, in the Lord. So... Uh, if, if that's that's where we're picking up is this this people that had uh, gone from a land of a barrenness uh, to uh, you know we don't have any food we don't have any water and God brought them uh, to Elam where they had uh, twelve wells and seventy palm trees and all those things the 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 wonderful uh, provision of God and we talked about how. You can, you can go from a barren land into, uh, that the Lord will often take us from a barren land into a place of rest like Elam. So uh, that's uh, essentially where we're picking up here is understanding where they were before and where they are now. So verse 1 says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So this whole congregation, when it says all the congregation, you're talking about an estimated two million people, as we've talked about. That's a lot of people, and uh, there's uh, there's there's no water for them. Uh, so where it says that they they had uh, set out on their journey, we know that as this as the the pillar of cloud and fire would lead them, they would move forward. If the pillar moved left, they would move left. If it moved right, they would move right. Uh, you know, God was was there and was directing them exactly where to go. So when it says uh, that they set out, it, it was as the pillar of fire or smoke uh, had been leading them. So uh, we uh, see here that according to the commandment of the Lord, they would move uh, and they camped in Rephidim. But there was no water uh, for the people to drink. So uh, this is another test for Israel. Uh, the Lord, uh, we'll see here, the Lord didn't just bring them out there to die. But um, we'll, we'll see here that as the other tests, they're going to pass it with you know, flying colors, right? And we, we know that's not right, right? They, they fail it because uh, they, they are forgetting who God is and what he's done for. And as we talked about last week, it's hard to look at them with a big finger pointing at them uh, because we have to realize how fickle we can be uh, in our faith sometimes. So uh, well, there's a lot for us to learn uh, from them, especially in these moments. Verse uh, 2 says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our 
children and our livestock with thirst. So they had just ex experienced God's miraculous provision. You know, when we think of Mara, where they got there, and uh, there was bitter water, and it was turned sweet by just throwing, uh, by by him casting the tree into it, right? That it made uh, the water <clears throat> the water sweet. And then they get to Elam, and uh, there are twelve uh, springs there, as we talked about, and uh, seventy palm trees. So now, uh, then they they needed the food, and and while they were still. Um, in bondage, they they go back to this, and uh, they uh, we'll, we'll see here. But they uh, they are at a point where uh, they're just saying, you know, why have you why have you taken us out of there? Uh, you know, we were we were in Egypt. We could have been just fine there. And and they said uh, in what we were studying last week in sixteen, they said, oh, that we were you know basically still in bondage, slavery, and torture. You know, and uh, they they uh, were saying, you know, we had pots of meat to eat. We had all this this food available to us. Uh, we had bread to eat till we were full. And, and and here we go again. They're they're saying, did you bring us here to kill us all? You know, it's the same foolish question that they had already asked before. Uh, and God had just given them quail and bread and gave them the very specific instructions and and what they were to learn was to rely completely on the Lord and we see here another test uh, coming up uh, right in front of them uh, right here so uh, Spurgeon uh, it says uh, Spurgeon said um, God's uh, God's people tend to engrave their trials in marble and their blessings in the sand uh, that's something uh, important for us all to realize and, and, to, and, and to understand. You know, the, the prince of pre uh, preachers, uh, as they call Spurgeon, when he says that God's people tend to engrave their trials in marble and their blessings in the sand. Uh, that's uh, what it is. Is you, We all know when we're writing something in sand, it's gone, right? As soon as the tide comes, and it, then it's washed away. Uh, we are, are very much that way in our hearts. We're we're so forgetful of God's uh, providence, uh, God's uh, goodness toward us, and His grace and mercy, and those things that we forget all the things that He has done for us in the past. And then when we get to a, a specific uh, circumstance or situation in our lives, uh, it, that it's it's like we wrote it in the sand and it's gone. But then you know our trials, we'll look at those, and we've got those etched in marble. You know that there would be the oh I remember this my suffering and these things not understanding that that's the Lord working and and, and building us through those trials but uh, I I like that uh, that quote I think it's it's accurate so we see here we talked about it last week uh, but this is a, another example of of <clears throat> Israel being brought out of Egypt quickly. Uh, but but the, the the fact that it was going to take several years for for Egypt to be removed from their lives, you know, here they are. They're saying, "Hey, did you bring us out of Egypt?" They keep going back to Egypt in their complaints, in their um, uh, complaints against Moses. But we know that their complaints against Moses were complaints about, about the Lord. And uh, so, yes, they had been taken out quickly, quickly but it was going to take years to take that that. A reliance upon and that longing. Why would we long for for uh, our chains? I don't know. But uh, in our sin, we do. When our mindset is wrong, when we don't have the right mindset, we go back to, well, it was so much easier back then. All I had to do was focus on me, <laughs> right? And if as long as the focus is on me, I'm great because we're fulfilling our flesh, right? And uh, so there was the 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 great um, uh, you know longing. Uh, for uh, the provision of Egypt rather than what God uh, had done for them. So uh, they are uh, in a spot here where uh, they're com <clears throat> complaining against Moses, and Moses is saying, why are you contending with me? Why, uh, why do you tempt the Lord? So that contention and that, that, uh, that um, tempting we're going to see uh, actually changes the name of the place uh, that they're in. So... Uh, now realize this: that uh, what we have coming up is uh, in. Uh, we'll we'll go back and and look at this a little bit more uh, regarding the rock uh, that that God provides for. We'll uh, we'll reference Numbers uh, chapter twenty here in a moment. But uh, 
as we move forward, we'll go into verse four and then we'll, we'll talk about how God provides from here. So uh, verse four says, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, <clears throat> what shall I do uh, with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So uh, what we see here is everybody's turning against Moses again. Two million people is a lot of people to be mad at you. <laughs> you ever you ever been at a point where like you've, you've got one or two people mad at you and a little overwhelming? This is two million people. All right, there's a lot of people that are whining and crying. You know, babies are crying and all these things, and they're all looking at Moses, and 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 they're they're trying to blame Moses. So Moses, uh, what he does as he's overwhelmed is. Uh, he he goes to the Lord and says, Lord, uh, you know, what shall I do with these people? They're about to stone me. And the Lord gives him these instructions for him um, to go before the people and uh, take with him some of the elders and also take in his hand the rod with which uh, he struck the river uh, and go. So uh, think of uh, how God has already used Moses. And when Moses would hear the instructions of the Lord, there wasn't a questioning. Moses would just go do it. Now he's called to, uh, in his place of leadership, go first, go in front, go before the people. Uh, and uh, as God calls him to, he goes. And uh, now the Lord says here in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Now, as we're reading that, I don't know if any of us have ever been in a rocky area gone like, oh, I wonder if I can just tap into this rock and, you know, fountains of water are going to flow out of it, right? I mean, that's not a natural thought for us, right? This is a miraculous provision here. So, uh, you know, when the Lord says, you know, I will stand before you there on that rock uh, and you shall strike the, wa the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. We don't have a record of Moses saying, no, that doesn't make any sense. Now, remember, he had already seen, he had already witnessed so many things. So he's trusting the Lord. Now, uh, when we consider a rock, a stone, you know, they're cold and they're dry. Uh, it's it's the last thing that we would expect water to come out of, right? Uh, I, I know that some some trees you can tap and get some uh, something to come out of it that you can drink, or you might be able to, you know, get a uh, some coconuts or whatever, and and have something to drink there. Nobody in their right mind is just going to go, oh, hey, I'm going to go find that boulder and I'm going to hit it with a stick, and water's going to come out of it. What God is calling him to do is something impossible. You know, it's possible. It's you know, it's completely uh, within Moses' ability to take a stick and hit it off the rock. But in faith to do it, believing that God was going to provide, uh, that's what God's calling Moses to do. And when he says that he's going to go before him uh, and to strike the rock, it's it's God's miraculous provision. You know, he's all powerful. Nothing limits the Lord. So uh, for God to say uh, something like this uh, is uh, isn't outside of you know, what he can do. You know, I don't. Uh, when we uh, consider uh, scriptures like Psalm 78, verses 15 and 17, it says, uh, verse 15 says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers, but they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. <clears throat> Psalm 105 verses 39 and through 41 says he spread uh, a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light in the night. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread from heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in dry places like a river. So Moses uh, in a pattern of obedience to follow, he hears God's command and he goes and does 
what he's called to do. Now, um, there's a uh, something that ends up happening later. There are two incidences where God uh, tells Moses uh, specific instructions regarding going to a rock. One time, God tells him to strike the rock, to smite the rock, if you have a King James Version, to hit the rock, to strike it, that the rock would be smitten. And uh, then he also, uh, the second time, which is in Numbers 20, uh, and if you guys can turn there um, uh, and, and meet me there, we're going to uh, go and look at that. It's the second time that we see that God is calling Moses to do something um, with the rod that's in his hand uh, with a, a rock. So Numbers chapter 20, verse 7, we're going to read 7 through 13. It is up there if you don't have your Bible with you, but Numbers 20, verse 7 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. So uh, you know, it's an, uh, here we are again. They need water, and they're complaining. Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, rod you and your uh, brother uh, Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock. So the first time that we just read, he was called to strike the rock, right? This time is to speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. What was he told to do in verse 7? To speak to the rock, right? So now he strikes the rock. And uh, ver middle of verse 11 says, And water came out abundantly in the congregation uh, and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hollow me uh, in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Mirabah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So Moses struck the, law, uh, the, the rock, and he misrepresented God. Now, when we consider the rock, what the rock means, uh, what it symbolizes, uh, the rock can be looked at as a symbol of Christ, uh, where the first rock was called to be smitten once. Jesus Christ on the cross was smitten once for our lives. And Moses, in his misrepresentation in Numbers 20, uh, struck the rock twice in his frustration. So he misrepresented God and did opposite of what God told him to do. And that cost him being able to go into the promised land. So what we can understand is based on what, what Christ has done for us, that he was smitten once, is that now we can speak to the rock. We can speak to Jesus Christ and understand that he hears us and, and that we can uh, trust in him. Now, when we consider who uh, Jesus is, uh, there's a uh, there are a few things for us to to look at, you know, when when we understand the two and we'll cover more of numbers 20 when we get to it next. Uh, but I just wanted to, to share the the opposite, the two opposite things that happen. The first time he's called to smite the rock and the water comes out and everybody's taken care of the second time in his frustration and, and misrepresenting God. He strikes the rock versus uh, speaking uh, to the rock. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, this is going to shine a little bit more light. Uh, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
Now, scholars uh, debate whether uh, it was the rock that was uh, was uh, following them or the water that came from the rock. Regardless, uh, Christ was present with them in the wilderness. So this rock, this because it's weird, like when you think of why would God tell Moses to go to a rock and God says that he's going to stand on it and that after Moses uh, strikes the rock, then water is going to flow from it. Uh, that doesn't make any any physical uh, sense at all when you think of it, you know, that, that you would take a, a piece of wood and, and strike a rock. But when we understand what that, that rock represents uh, and uh, when we understand who Christ is, um, there are a few things to consider regarding Jesus. Jesus said himself that uh, in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes down, uh, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus claimed to be that bread from heaven, right? Jesus came from heaven, and he said that he is uh, the, the bread of life. This uh, and when we get down, uh, we're going to cover a couple more things and then uh, look toward uh, what the Lord says about the rock producing water here. But so after Christ was uh, smitten on the cross, uh, what what happened to the church? Right, they get together and when the resurrected Christ visited them, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Right, the water. So you think that the rock was smitten? The Holy Spirit came, you know, or, or the water came out, symbolic of Christ being smitten and the Holy Spirit coming. So rock, uh, water, Christ, the Spirit, uh, as as the result when those two uh, were were when the rock was smitten and when Jesus was smitten, what what flowed out uh, provided one provided sustenance and water, the other. Uh, gave uh, it's the Holy Spirit that the the fountains of, of living waters right. So in John chapter seven, if you haven't already, you can turn back to where we were. And in, in uh, John chapter seven, the verses are uh, are are going to come up in a moment. But John chapter seven, uh, there's a a great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, that's being celebrated, and and water would be ceremoniously poured. Uh, out to remember God's provision. So it was a day of silence, and uh, they remembered the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And uh, the priest would pour water uh, into seven golden bowls, and then they would uh, carry them up to the altar and pour that water on, on uh, the horn of the altar. There were two horns there, and they'd pour it on there, and it would run out. And it was a, a picture of the rock that followed them. That was, that was what it was representing, this, this water here that would be poured out on the altar. Now, in the middle of a this celebration in John chapter 7, uh, verses 37 through 39, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is remembering the water that was poured out, right? Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We see the symbolism here. There's the rock. They were told to strike. Moses was told to strike the rock and the water would come out. And then Jesus in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, which remembered that, uh, stands up at the, on the last day of the great feast. And he stands up and what does he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. If you're thirsty, let him come to me. Because they were remembering the water that was provided in the desert when they were thirsty. So Jesus standing and saying, they needed that to, to sustain them. You need me. You need to come to me to experience that. Um, the, when he said here, uh, let him come to me and he'll drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow uh, rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit. So when Christ was, spit, was smitten, then came the Spirit, and and we have the Spirit uh, ministering to us now. So uh, we receive life as a result of the rock of salvation being smitten for us on the cross. Verse 7. So he, Moses, 
called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, "The Lord uh, is the Lord among us or not? So Massa means contention, Meribah means tempted. And I love the great question that he's asking them. He's like, you know, uh, if, if God is with us, then why do you fear? Why do you complain? Uh, if he's not, how do we get this far? It's a powerful question. It's a simple question, right? I mean, when, when you look at the question, it's just, is the Lord among us or not? But the, the, the implication of the answer that when he's giving that, you know, that question is, is very powerful. Because he's asking the people, you know, okay, if, if he's not with us, then how do we get this far? And if he is, then why are you fearing or complaining? What, at what point has God uh, abandoned you to the point where we, we think we can't trust it? So Moses asked that question to the children of Israel that were murmuring, that were fighting against him, contending against him. And he had to say, look, guys, you know, why are you contending against me? And why do you tempt God? Uh, you know, after all that they'd seen, consider that. Consider all that they'd seen. And I know we talked about this last week, but it's important to understand. Uh, consider everything that they witnessed. And I know you've heard me say this before, but seeing is not believing. Seeing might spark some sort of belief for a while, but we're called to faith. We're called to believe when we don't see. And they're so quick, right? What did we talk about earlier? That, that, that we love to engrave our trials in marble, but then we'll write of, uh, of the other things, the good things in our lives in sand. And we'll forget God's provision for us. That, that, that Spurgeon quote uh, saying that. You know, if we understand how frail we are, uh, just, just, and I love Moses' question, just summing it all up. Is God for us? Is he here with us or not? And there's no recorded answer there. <laughs> I love that. I kind of love the cliffhangers there uh, because I, I'm willing to bet it was dead silent. And then he said, get out of here. <laughs> That's what I'd be you know, willing to bet if I was a betting man. I'm not. But uh, Verse 8. Now Amalek, so big shift of gears here. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now uh, this could have been because they heard Israel was there and they were afraid. Uh, it could have been because they're in a desert and they find out, wait a minute, how are all these guys getting provided for? And they find out that there's water there for them. I don't know. Uh, we don't we don't know why uh, they were attacking them. But we're going to look into how uh, how they attacked them here uh, in just a few moments. But so now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, come, uh, so, uh, Joshua, choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, uh, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur uh, supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. Uh, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we just covered a lot there. We covered, uh, what, uh, eight, nine verses here. And, and uh, we see a lot that, that gets introduced, uh, Amalek. Uh, is introduced as attacking uh, Israel, and, and Moses goes to Joshua. Uh, Joshua's name it means Yahweh's salvation in the Greek. It's Jesus, and um, the uh, his name uh, was was changed by Moses to uh, his name was uh, Hosea, and then Moses changed his name to Yahushua. 
uh, Joshua. Um, it's the first time he's mentioned here. So uh, we've seen that all the battles that Israel needed to fight, God fought for them. We've seen that all the way up through until uh, they've been delivered from Egypt. Now, we talked a lot about Egypt representing sin and how sin works in our lives and brings us into bondage. So we see that God took them through their bondage into freedom. And now that they're, they're set free, uh, they still have to contend with their flesh. So now they're contending with other flesh in, in Amalek. So there are two things to kind of look at. The, the, the physical thing that they're dealing with, but it's also a, a picture of battling with the flesh that we're going to look into here. So uh, now Israel's called the fly, called the fight, and uh, God had already proved himself strong uh, with them uh, not even fighting. And now they're, uh, now they're called to fight here. And, and uh, the victory still comes from the Lord, but uh, God used Moses, Aaron, and her. Uh, and those two came alongside Moses and helped him by holding up his hands. It was a picture of them. Uh, if we want to look at a New Testament scripture where it'll say, bear one another's burdens, right? So uh, Moses, as long as he was holding up uh, the, the rod, it was holding it in the air, Israel prevailed. And when his arms would come down, then Amalek uh, prevailed. Uh, one thing to take away from this, because we don't always have a commentary into explaining everything that God is doing and, and the reasoning behind it. But one thing we can we can gather from that is as he's sitting down, uh, he's raising his hands up and he has Aaron and her on each side holding his hands up uh, and, and, and helping him. So what we see here is a picture of, of, of prayer. Uh, if you consider Psalm 28, verse 2, it says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. When we're lifting our hands to the Lord, we're, we're using prayer as a weapon. We're, we're approaching God. It, for us in prayer, it might be a tool if we're dealing with something with just that we're calling out to God that we need. Um, uh, we're, we're asking maybe uh, on somebody else's behalf, but when we're fighting a battle, man, the prayer and the word are two very massive uh, and, and very um, effective weapons that the Lord has given us. He hasn't just like set us out and said, hey, you figure it out, kid. And, you know, that's not what you're called to do. Uh, you know, the Lord gives us what we need to fight our battles. It's not like God just says, well, I delivered you, so now you got to figure it out. Uh, it, it's it's very he's very much a hands-on God, very involved and uh, and and here to help us. So we see that with with prayer being uh, used as a weapon, it was his hands were lifted, and and that could we could look at that as a picture of surrender and reaching out to him. Um, then we move forward in the Lord's strength and in his victory. Now, considering who Amalek is, like. Who are these people, and, and why are they why are they attacking Israel? Um, later on, when we get to Deuteronomy 25, we're going to see some commentary on how the Lord viewed this, and and a little bit more of, of how it worked. But we're going to look at a few verses, uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Uh, they should come up here. It says, "Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt." how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the sun, you shall not forget." What they did, the, the offense they committed was against the Lord. And what they did is they went to the rear ranks. They went to the weakest point, to the slowest people, and attacked the slowest ones. And just think of how cowardly and how wicked that is. Those that are the slowest ones, probably the ones that are, are, are handicapped or uh, just feeble or, or, or whatever it is, you know, when, when the Lord says, to them to remember what they did uh, when they were coming out of Egypt, 
when you were coming out, when you were being delivered from your bondage, from the land of your bondage, and you're being brought uh, away from that, and that you were attacked, <clears throat> you were being provided for. Um, there's miraculous water coming from a tree that's providing all these things. And, and uh, uh, God is telling them here that he hasn't forgot about it and that they should, and they were to blot out the remembrance of Amalek, completely wipe them out. Amalek was supposed to be judged for what they did in finding the, the weak and, and the feeble and attacking them. That's, uh, that's quite a commentary uh, regarding how it happened. Because if we're just looking uh, here at Exodus 17, there could be some confusion on, well, like, what does that mean? They just attacked him. But how did they attack them? And what did that mean to the Lord? That we would understand how uh, evil that was in the eyes of the Lord and what it meant. And uh, you'll probably remember, I'm, I'm sure you will, uh, is um, when... Saul was told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. He didn't, right? We've studied this before. He didn't, and, and God sent Samuel to correct him. It was an Amalekite when, that was there when Saul died, an Amalekite. And he went, remember, he went and bragged. He's like, oh, yeah, I killed Saul. Remember, just, just think of the victory they would have had over the Amalekites. If, if Saul was uh, obedient to what he was supposed to be. So the Amalekites just were a, a thorn in their side. Consider this, if you're looking at this, yes, this is a historical uh, aspect here, but in the Christian life, we're, we're saved, and then we have to fight our flesh. You know, Israel was delivered from Egypt, but they still had to fight when they came out. We see that happening here. And we see that uh, when uh, Moses was at a point where uh, in his portion of the fight, his job was to keep his hands raised, right? And that people came alongside him and helped him raise his hands. It's important for us to realize how important our brothers and sisters are to us in our struggles. That we're not called to be, you've heard me say this before, Lone Ranger Christians where we can take care of it all ourselves. No, God very much blesses us with you know, brothers and sisters that love us very much and, and will stand with us and, and help us to bear our burdens that we have here. So Amalek is a picture of the flesh. And as I spoke before, God doesn't uh, leave us without resources. He's given us his, us his, his grace, his spirit, his word, prayer, our brothers and sisters that love us. He's given us those things that as we are fighting our spiritual battles, we're uh, not left alone. You know, God's watching over us. He's our good shepherd. <clears throat> when we have come out of uh, our bondage, there's a, a shift where, uh, where we are going to, uh, yes, we're going to have to get our flesh to fall in line and, and say, no, I'm, I'm, my fleshly desires are, are not going to be what drives me. Uh, I'm going to submit my life to the spirit. and I'm going to walk according to the spirit. That's how I'm going to find victory in our lives. That's what the Spirit tells us, and that's what the Word tells us, I should say. Um, as we're walking in the Spirit, then we're going to have victory over the flesh. If we're trying to walk in the flesh and have victory over the flesh, we're feeding the flesh, right? And as we feed the flesh, it's going to grow stronger. If we starve the flesh and feed our spirit, we're going to be stronger spiritually, right? Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18 say, uh, I, I say then, walk in the Spirit. This is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, skipping down to verse 24, it says, and those who are our Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So you see those, those things that are said there by, by Paul. He says, walk in the spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the lust, uh, for the flesh lusts after the uh, flesh lusts after uh, 
Oh my goodness. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Those two are always going to be opposed to one another. We're either walking in the spirit or walking in our flesh. It's one or the other. Where is the victory going to be found in our lives? In the spirit, right? That we, we need to be there. Verse 25 of Galatians 5 says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. How, how do we carry out our lives? How do we walk about every day? Uh, we go through each day in the spirit. If we're trying to live in the spirit and then walk in our flesh, it's never, those two are always going to be contrary to one another. There has to be the submission to the spirit and walking in the spirit for us to find victory. If we, How long does it take, right? It doesn't take very long of us following our flesh to get disastrous for us. It never does. The flesh always wants to take control and never wants to give up anything. There's always that selfish desire that's just sitting right there. If we're walking in the spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we see the what was happening here for, for Israel. They were delivered, and then they had a battle to fight. And the Lord gave them the victory uh, as, as Moses was uh, lifting his hands, and uh, God gave them victory. And there's so much there that we can glean from that uh, on a spiritual sense and, and apply it here uh, to our lives today. Ver chapter 18. Another uh, very big shift in gears. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought uh, Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back uh, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer. For he had said, uh, he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now uh, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they each uh, they asked each about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So after this, uh, this battle and everything, the next thing that's being described as a, a time of rest and during the time of rest and in the time of peace, uh, Jethro is now bringing, uh, uh, sorry, uh, I almost said Abraham, Moses' family to him. And uh, remember, Moses had left and uh, had uh, God had given him very simple, uh, very specific instructions that he needed to go to Pharaoh, and uh, he left them uh, there with, uh, with Jethro. Now Jethro, now that they've been delivered, Jethro is bringing them uh, back to Moses. So uh, you may remember Zipporah. This is the last that she's mentioned. Uh, Zipporah didn't want to yield to the command of circumcision before, uh, back in Exodus uh, chapter 4. And they had that, uh, that exchange where um, uh, she understands that uh, she needs to submit to uh, God's, uh, God's authority in their life and that God has commanded that the, the males in Israel were to be circumcised. And then she goes and circumcises them and throws uh, the, the foreskin at, at, uh, at Moses' feet and says that you're a husband of blood to me. So there was some contention there over obeying the Lord there. But uh, we see here that obviously they're blessed to, to see each other again. But if you're trying to remember Zipporah and where she came from and everything, uh, just just rewind a little bit, get back into Exodus and and uh, get a little bit caught up on uh, how things came together here. So uh, so uh, so uh, Jethro reaches out and gets word to Moses that he's coming. Moses obviously getting very excited. And when they met each other, uh, it says that he bowed down, bowed down and kissed him. He had that, that great uh, respect for his father in law. Verse eight. And Moses told his father in law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them 
on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for uh, in this very thing, in the very thing in which uh, they behaved proudly, he was above them, right? Because when God was addressed, he was, he was judging their gods, right? Not just judging them, he was also judging their gods and proving himself strong over them. Uh, verse 12, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came uh, with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' his, uh, Moses' father-in-law uh, before God. So we see everybody, as soon as food gets involved, everybody wants to come and eat, right? So uh, so God is uh, getting the glory here. When you, when you read through, Moses is explaining to Jethro everything that God did and that God provided and that God won uh, all the all the victories that they needed, that God judged Israel, uh, sorry, judged Egypt and, and uh, delivered Israel by his hand. It wasn't anything that, that Egypt, that Israel did. Uh, to uh, to gain that victory, and and we see here by Jethro's response, he's saying, "Look out!" He says, "You know, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the mighty hand, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and delivered the people from under the hands of the Egyptians." And uh, God was making a point to so many people, and 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 even Jethro acknowledges it here. Now I know that the Lord is greater than these gods, and he says, "Look at how the that." That God, in in what He's saying, is is you know God demonstrated His power over all of them. They would behave proudly, and all these people would worship them, uh, these false gods, in these ways. And God made it look foolish, and uh, you know, giving them, oh, you want to you want to uh, serve a god that uh, looks like it's it's a uh, human and a frog and everything. Okay, I'll give you some frogs. You want frogs? And and how God uh, judged them uh, according to their idolatry. Uh, so God is getting the glory here for his victory over Egypt, as God said that he would, that he would be the only one that would get the glory. Verse 13, so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that uh, he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Uh, so Jethro notices. So uh, another shift in, in what's happening here. Jeff, Jethro, uh, the next day after they had kind of got together, Moses was like, hey, I got to go to work. I, you know, he didn't have like vacation time, uh, you know, stored up and everything. Moses understood uh, what he had to do, and he had to get back to to ruling uh, the nation. But he's doing it in a way that's going to burn him out. And uh, and God uses Jethro to tell him this. So um, Jethro notices that Moses using all his time and energy and uh, to judge uh, you know all the matters. And and uh, he asks him why you know why are you doing this? And because we see that he's he's doing it from morning until evening. Uh, think of how long that line is. <laughs> right. I mean, if he's sitting there judging uh, now, think about it. You have two million people. And every time something's coming up, these whiners are they can't figure it out for themselves. Right. You know, we're called, you know, consider uh, amongst believers. We're, we're called to resolve things as much as we can uh, amongst each other. We're not supposed to go to the, the judges uh, against each other. That's a bad witness. We're not supposed to be uh, suing each other. Those things. So, but what we see here is these people are unruly and everything, and they've got issues. So all these these issues now, when you go in for these arguments, this means they couldn't settle it. So they were both set on I'm right and I'm right. So Moses had to listen them to to each side, listen to them, hear them out, and then come to the decision from morning until evening. So he was spending all of his days just just doing these things. So Jethro notices this and. And these these two have a very respectful relationship. Uh, Moses has a lot of respect uh, for Jethro, and uh, you may remember that he was uh, he tended his sheep when when uh, Jethro brought him in. 
when uh, Moses was, uh, he finds out, when Jethro finds out that some uh, Egyptian stood up for his daughters, right? When they were at the wells and, uh, you know, all the shepherds would come and, and would kind of shoo his daughters off. And then he stood up for him. He's like, basically, what are you guys doing? You know, bring the guy here. He's, he, you know, we can use that guy. And then he gives him his wife. He gives him Zipporah as his wife and uh, those things. And, and then Moses serves him. Verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the, uh, the people come to me and inquire of God, when they have a difficulty, uh, they come to me and I judge between one another and uh, one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is explaining the situations. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we, if you, if you consider from Moses' standpoint, so we talked about the whiners that are standing there waiting to come burden Moses, right? Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we need a mediator. We can't settle things. Um, but this is all day, every day. And and, and nobody's really seemingly uh, mature enough to settle their own things. So even if there were little things that we'll see here that were being brought out here, uh, they couldn't even settle those on their own. So they come to Moses and, and uh, Moses is what this reminds me of is you ever have find yourself in a situation where you realize that you had blinders on and you didn't know it. That's Moses in this situation. Moses has blinders on and he can't see that, you know, sometimes the answers are, are like right next to us or all around us. And it, sometimes we need somebody to come along with godly guidance. <clears throat> now, don't mistake this. OK, um, this is a man that Moses trusted uh, that he would give godly counsel. What is what does Psalm one tell us? Uh, blesses a man who walks not in the un, in the counsel of the ungodly. So we shouldn't go to ungodly people asking for uh, for guidance uh, and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I, I need some help in a spiritual matter." We're going to get greatly uh, just just think of that, right? If somebody's not a Christian, do we want to go to them for Christian counseling? Probably not, right? Uh, so we want to get our counsel from those who are godly. This man uh, has very godly counsel for him. And uh, so Moses' father-in-law, as uh, Moses gives him the answer, he's like, hey, I just tell them when they come to me with their problems and I tell them, you know, what God says. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, verse 17, the thing uh, that you do is not good. Both you and these people uh, who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes of, and the laws, and show them the way which uh, they must walk and the work they must do. So uh, Jethro, in response to Moses telling him, you know, kind of what's going on, he, 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 and these are paraphrases, he says, you're going to wear yourself out, you and the people waiting for the judgment. You can't do this all yourself. You know, listen to my voice. Now, remember that, that this relationship that they have is a healthy, very healthy relationship. You know, Moses tended his sheep, uh, enjoyed serving under him. Uh, they built a relationship of trust based on respect. Excuse me. So Moses spoke through Jethro uh, to give good, uh, godly advice. And uh, uh, so what he tells him is bring the difficulties to God. He will guide you and you will teach them his statutes and laws. And we're going to look into that here in just a moment. Uh, so, uh, you know, show them the way to walk and work and, and what they must do. He say, OK, instead of having everybody come up one to one, let's give them like you know, just, just go all out and teach them and, and be ready to teach them. And, and we see here delegation being introduced here in verse 21. Um, ever been in a job where someone won't delegate? Hopefully we're not the ones that won't delegate, right? Uh, because what happens if we're the one not delegating things? It means we trust ourselves and nobody else, right? I'm the only one who can get this job done right. Delegating can be hard, especially when it's something difficult and you don't know if you can trust in somebody. You know, delegation is uh, is letting things go and letting people take it and expect them to fail. Expect them to have a hard time here or there or need some help here and those things. 
But that delegation is so important because Moses was just taking it all on by himself. And his, his, his father-in-law has some godly uh, perspective to share with him also. He says, moreover, verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God. Now, when he says you shall, that is going to be qualified later on in this reading as God leads you. He understood what Moses was called to do. He's not coming saying, hey, I'm, you know, you got to listen to me. He says, God's your authority, but I, I've got some advice to share with you. Uh, so verse 21 again, uh, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God. These Look at the look at the uh, criteria here. Three people, uh, three main spiritual criteria here says uh, such as fear God. So these able men, they one have to fear God. They're men of truth and they hate covetousness and hating covetousness, it says. And we're going to we're going to dive into that here in just a moment and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall come to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden for you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go uh, to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers over fifties, rulers over tens. Uh, so they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went on his way, uh, and he went on his way to his own land. So this delegation that is presented to Moses, and it's presented perfectly. He's, he says, hey, what, have you considered this? And he says to him that you need to select uh, from all the people able men. So when you see these people that are, are able to do so, they need to make these three spiritual criteria. Okay, these are very important. They need to fear God. They, uh, they need to be men of truth. And they need to hate covetousness. Let them judge at all times. Uh, you know, the big stuff, they can come to you. But really, you need to uh, let them uh, help, help you. You know, it will be easier for you for they will, uh, they will bear the burden with you. That word uh, easier uh, is the Hebrew word to lighten, uh, as to lighten a ship. Uh, Warren Wearsby uh, shared it that way, uh, as to lighten a ship. That, that, that burden that may be there, that right? You lighten a ship so it doesn't sink, right? So it doesn't take on water and sink. The same thing. He's just saying, guys, you can't, guy, you can't handle this. You need you need some help. You need somebody to come along and 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 help you. So uh, remember, in the book of Acts, there were deacons established so that the apostles could give themselves uh, to prayer and to the word, right? So they could completely give themselves to those things. So Moses gives them. Uh, uh, sorry, Jethro gives him a, a great template here. Men that fear God, they're men of truth and they're not covetousness, integrity. So the men that fear God, men of integrity, they're not living in compromise. Their lives don't have compromise in them. They fear God and they love the Lord. They seek the Lord. The first thing about it is they need to be people who love God. The second thing goes right along with that. They love the truth. We can't love God and then hate the truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? We can't hate the truth and fear God. Those two things don't mix. So he's telling him, you need godly men that love God, that fear God, and that are men of integrity, and will rule in truth, and they hate covetousness. That means they can't be bribed. Okay, think of people in positions of power. When you think of power, uh, just think in this nation, the people that are in power, do we have a full trust in them? <laughs> I would love to say yes, right? We'd love to. But unfortunately, what happens in politics? Corruption, right? Money, more money. You've got more power, more influence in those things. What Jethro is saying is 
you don't want anything to do with these type of people. These type of people that are going to push on their own end to, to gain a position. No, you want the ones that are men of integrity, that fear God, that love God. They love the truth. And you're not, they're, they're not going to be bought for any price. They're not covetousness. Uh, not covetous. They're not going to be those ones that say, well, you know what? I might be able to turn a blind eye on this one. Right? Because people are, the reason that's, that's in there is because people will try to bribe. They'll try to come in and say, hey, you can, you can really, you know, why don't you, you know, I, I can give you this land. You, you remember you, you were trying to buy this land from me and every, why don't, you know, I'll, I'll give you a good deal on it. Well, you just make this work in my way. We'll shake hands, wink, wink, nod, nod, give him an elbow bump. Those aren't the people he wants. You want men that love God, they're, they're, uh, uh, pure hearts, and they're men of integrity and that they are, uh, that they love the truth and will rule in truth. Letting the truth be what rules, uh, it gives them, uh, it helps them to rule and hate covetousness. They're not going to be bribed. Consider First Timothy, and it will come up here. First Timothy three, when Paul is telling Timothy, the young pastor, what to look for in church leadership, he says, "A bishop then must be blameless. The husband or an elder uh, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior." hospitable, able to teach. Look at verse 3. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. That the same, It's the same type of person that Jethro is describing to Moses would be needed to rule right. And when, when you look at what, what's needed in church leadership, there's your example of what, what, what a church leader should be. Those are, are leading the church. Jethro is telling him, you need help lifting your burden. Just like as we reference in Acts, they couldn't be burdened with waiting tables. Somebody else needed to take that, right? So they established deacons and they were able to wholly finish on, you know, uh, uh, focus on what God had for them. I like how he says here uh, that um, if you do this thing, verse 23, if you do this thing and God so command you, then you will be able to endure and all the people in the house, uh, uh, sorry, and all uh, this people will also go uh, to their place in peace. It's not only going to benefit you, you're going to set up a good system here and it's going to minister and it's going to be a blessing to the others. So Moses is given this template by his father-in-law here that's going to set things in order, that God used Jethro to speak to Moses. And what did it do? It freed Moses up to take care of bigger things than you know, worrying about the smallest of details. Those smallest of details were just distracting him from the, the proper leadership, the uh, proper things that he needed for leadership, right? Probably taking his prayer time. His time in the word and all those things. Because he's spending you know, morning into evening just with whatever foolishness is coming his way. He's got a rule. Instead of these people saying, you know what, let's just try to figure these things out. And they're not mature enough to do it. They need to be. Now, think about it, right? So Maine's, what, 1.3 million people? I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, uh, one and a half Maine's. Of all these people, that's a lot of people that you're dragging through a wilderness. I, yeah, there's going to be contention. There's going to be striving in those things. Yes, they need to be taken care of. But man, these guys were whining his ear right off. And he wasn't going to be able to take it, and neither were they. When he took this advice, and as Jethro said, that he was going to be able to, to, to do what he needs to do here, and that he's going to be able to endure, and the people are going to go to their place in peace. They're going to be heard. They're not mad, you know, pulling the thing in line and finding out they're number 1,286 for the day. Well, you know, we worry about the D or BMV or whatever, right? Or number 62. You know, this was all day, listening to other people's problems, and they're arguing next to each other the whole day. God took care of it. So some pretty interesting things we get to see uh, as we went through these, these two chapters that God is providing water from a rock and, and what that points to and that we understand that God 
provided for them for 40 years through a rock. And that when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, it describes that it was Christ that was there providing for them. Now, there's a, there's a lot for us to chew in here, so I encourage you. I, I know we went through two chapters. I'd encourage you to go back and read them and dive in a little bit more and see how God speaks to you. So let's pray. Father, we uh, appreciate the time that we have together. We're grateful for your word, and we ask, God, that we would uh, store it in our hearts. We wouldn't reject it, but that we would accept it and apply it to our lives. Help us to remember what we have here and be able to share it as we need to, uh, as we move forward and as we are serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your night.